Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Having an athlete-centered approach to working with the whole person, they, uh, weaponize your strength mm. and reduce a weakness. Uh, don't be afraid to look outside of the specific sport that you are coaching and interested in. So welcome to our first episode of a series of interviews that we're hopefully going to be doing over the next six months interspersed with our other podcasts. And that is around the coaches. And uh, Ross has been traveling around the world over the last couple of weeks and has spent some time in places like Costa Rica and most recently in Boulder. And um, very shortly, he'll be in Washington as well. And uh, got a chance to speak to some of these coaches. And the idea really, Ross, is that we're going to be chatting to these guys because many of the athletes that we speak to have a lot to owe to the coaches that uh, get them to the top level of the sports that they're involved in. Yeah, and also coaches are the ultimate practitioners of sports science. Um, in fact, sports science almost exists to support coaches. Uh, if you trace back some of its origins, sports medicine and sports science came about to optimize the performance of athletes who were already working with coaches. So they are, they are the ultimate uh, carriers of sports science into the real world. And that's why it's always useful to speak to the best of them and understand how they think what they think, what their process is, and then how they deliver results to athletes. Because every single person listening, you know, you might not be Rowan Dennis, uh, you might not be an Olympic triathlete, but the principles that make them better are the same things that will make you better. So that's really the intention of the series. Yeah, exactly. And I think we are aiming to speak to a variety of coaches across different sports. And I think for those of you that are interested in the intricacies of uh, coaching, you'll get a lot out of these uh, interviews. So the first interview that Ross did was while he was in Boulder in Colorado in the United States, talking to Neil Henderson, who is one of the most respected endurance coaches, uh, not only in the States and Australia, but probably around the world. He's uh, helped a lot of first-time finishers and has coached several national champions, multiple world champions and several Olympians. Most importantly, he was awarded the Doc Councilman Coach of the Year Award by the United States Olympic Committee in 2011. That, that was for using science in his coaching. He's been an elite USA triathlon and USA cycling certified coach and was the 2009 USA National Cycling Coach of the Year. Uh, very recently, he's uh, coached Rowan Dennis to the bronze medal at the Olympic Games and the time trial and also coached uh, Dennis to the uh, to the UCI hour record in 2015 along with uh, Evelyn Stevens who also uh, got the hour record in 2016. He's been a regular member, staff member of the 2012 and 2016 Olympic Games as a cycling coach and went to Australia with the Australian cycling team in Tokyo very recently. And uh, his 
his job now is as head of sports science at the brand Wahoo. So a man with lots of lots of experience. And of course, himself also participated as a professional athlete from 2000 to 2003, specializing in exterior and winter triathlon. But Ross, I think most importantly, um, from the discussion that you're about to listen to, a great depth, in-depth insight. We were planning on a fairly short interview with him, but I think what you got out of that was quite intricate and detailed stuff about what it takes to bring an endurance champion to the to the top level of the sport. Yeah, a couple of things jumped out at me with Neil. The one was I went to his house to do this interview because, as he said, he's, he's now head of sports science with Wahoo. He used to run a um, sort of training facility, testing facility in Boulder. And I remember going there five years ago and, and being quite impressed by Neil and his application of sports science. And so... When I when I had the opportunity to interview him, I thought, okay, let's let's do twenty minutes, get some principles, learn a little bit about how he applies sports science. Um, so that's what that's why I was at his house, by the way. So you'll hear a couple of times his dog barking in the background and that sort of thing. He took me down into his his man cave where he does all his indoor training and Zwift and that sort of stuff as well. Um, but what struck me were the two things. One is the the depth of knowledge, um, but within that the way that his philosophy has evolved over time i thought that was particularly interesting so you hear that and the other thing that i think is quite meaningful is that my intention and his intention were to talk about the physiology and the science but there came a point where almost every single question even if it was about physiology took a sometimes 90 degree or otherwise arced in the direction of psychology and mental factors emotion and so on and it became almost inescapable to talk about physiology without also talking about psychology. And after a while, you start forgetting that you're dealing with a physiologist who has a master's in sports science. And you start thinking this person is, is actually applying sports psychology and emotional support to athletes. And that's actually a theme that I've realized in, in a couple other interviews I've done. I, I said to Bobby McGee, who's a triathlon running coach, um, who's one of our other guests on the series, does he consider himself as a, as a technical support to the athletes or a motivator? And he said in the beginning of his career, he was technical. Now there's no doubt that his main function for the athletes is motivational. So that was particularly striking. And it was, and you'll hear when you hear Neil, it, we, we almost couldn't answer a question without touching on some aspect or a very deep aspect of emotion, depression, psychology, <laughs> arousal. So yeah, that, that really did jump out at me. Well, here is Ross's interview with Neil Henderson. Okay, so Neil, thanks so much for your time. I'm, I'm, I, I jumped into your life at late notice <laughs> and you've accommodated me even with your equipment. So I really appreciate it. Uh, you've been coaching 20 years and I'm sure your philosophy has evolved a great deal over that time. Uh, would it, would it be fair to say you came to coaching as an athlete or as a scientist or, or what was your initial paradigm? Yeah, my initial paradigm came from being an athlete myself and then thinking about some of the applications that I was being exposed to in, in the sports science realm. I had a really influential swim coach um, who had a master's degree in exercise physiology and would share with us a bit of why we were doing what we were doing in training. And especially the thing that I remember the most was something about tapering. And, and 
I asked a lot of questions and she's like, well, let me just bring in a paper for you so you can read yourself and have some more understanding. And this is pre you, be, you being well, a student. I'm, a, I'm 17 years old, okay. high school right. senior. And uh, yeah. that was a, a huge introduction. And another aspect of that was I competed in track and field and I, I was more of a thrower to begin with, uh, discus and javelin. And I really wanted to be a pole vaulter and we didn't have any pole vault coach. And so I started to kind of like look up and read as much as I could about pole vaulting and ended up actually probably being a better pole vaulter than anything else I did um, in track and field and actually continued on and did some, some decathlon because uh, I didn't know when to say when and just tried to pick up and learn new things. But a lot of that was looking at information that was out there being supplied by different coaches in certain aspects. Uh, out of interest, what was the tapering thing that you remember? Do you remember specifically? Um, it was the, the particular thing was just the uh, reduction in volume okay. and what we were doing because we were a fairly low volume swim program that I was mm. uh, that I swam with, which again at the time, you know, most swim programs swam a lot more than we did. We had limited access to pool time. So we had one hour five days a week. Um, and so it was 4K in that hour pretty much most days. So it was very high quality, but low volume. And then, you know, knowing that so many other folks were swimming much more, that now we're all of a sudden we're coming into a big race and now we're cutting that in half. We're doing, you know, two, two and a half K versus 4K a day was like, oh no, we're not gonna be ready. And she's like, no, you're gonna be mm -hmm. more ready because of this. So you're an impressionable 17-year-old and you learn some coaching theory. Did, you, did that influence your decision to study it or did that come later after you pursued the career as an athlete? Yeah, it was part of the driving, uh, kind of opened the door to it. I had a, a little bit of an experience as a 16-year-old with my family actually getting to tour the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and seeing that, that the sports science building and actually got to talk with somebody actually in the biomechanics department who was analyzing race walking, which not, not a sport I was terribly interested in, but being able to see the motion broken down in a way where they were trying to discern the differences between the different athletes and, and especially the Americans at the time weren't doing as well mm -hmm. um, in that. And there was opportunity for them to improve. And so they were assessing what was different between basically uh, certain race walkers versus those who were more successful and being able to then use that to coach and change the mechanics mm. that, that the athletes were utilizing. Um, yeah. It's interesting because um, when I was 15, I also visited the Sports Science Institute. I showed up there, we were on vacation, my family and I in Cape Town and my parents knew that I was interested in sport and they said, why don't you, we had some friends, they said, why don't you go and visit, see if you can. So I invited myself and it was also for me one of the most foundational experiences was getting a tour of the building and there was one person in particular showed me her lab and what they do how they test and so on and, and i'm pretty sure that it was the catalyst as well so you had a sequence of the same things it's very interesting very similar yeah yeah, yeah. okay so then the journey begins you i know i know you were a competitive triathlete um the at what point did you study the sports science as opposed to experience the sports science 
Yep. Um, when I started my undergraduate, I actually um, started off in an in a engineering program because I wanted to go more into the biomechanics side. So I was in a mechanical engineering program at Penn State University, which it's one of the better engineering universities that we have here in the U.S. And the math was at my limit, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I was still having that goal of being in the applied side in the, in the sports science realm. And I had also been taking uh, one of the first exercise physiology classes. And it was that combination of like having that class. I was actually also coaching then with that same team and with the same coach in the summer prior uh, to my sophomore year that it was like, okay, I think I'm going to actually switch more to the sports science department mm. and look more on the physiology and applied coaching side of, of integrating that kind of information into uh, learning how to how to make athletes go faster. And did you when you when you then did that, did you instantly know that this is what you needed? Or was there a period of actual letdown, yeah. searching, there refining? Was, yeah, there was no question actually. Okay. It was a very clear uh, absolutely this is the right fit. This is the stuff that I'm most interested in. And it's kind of like when I stopped doing track and field, I, you know, I talked with the head coach at, I, I had tried to walk on at Penn State my freshman year mm. um, to track and field and doing decathlon specifically. I had done a couple triathlons in high school because I came from, you know, swim background and just wanted to do lots of different things. And uh, the head coach said, listen, you know, you're, you're going to be pretty low on the, uh, on the selections mm-hmm. here. Basically, you're not going to have a lot of opportunity. And I left that meeting kind of being like, wow, I've not had a coach really just be that, you know, direct in a way it felt just like putting me down. But, you know, it's just the reality of, of, you know, what I had to offer and Mm. where the scale of the other athletes were in that. And I went out for, you know, a ride and I'm thinking things through. I'm like, okay, in five years when I'm graduated, hopefully I'm graduated at that point, what would I do on a weekend? It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to like pull out a pole vault pit and go pole vaulting on a Saturday afternoon or go yeah. out and throw the, the shot put after work on Tuesday. I had done some triathlons like, well, I'd like to go out and run and swim and ride. And, you know, I've had some fun doing that. And for me, it was kind of like a switch into that sport because it was something I could do then for the rest of my life is the way I thought about mm. it. And within the sports science and, and that shift from, you know, kind of the engineering and mechanic side of it into the working more with people in a kind of a holistic way made the same kind of perfect sense of like, geez, actually, that's really what I want to do. Like mm. apply and help. So just to orient me, you're how old at this point? Um, basically 19, 20 years old. And you're learning about sports science. You're in the early stages of learning it. Can you remember if you were struck by a disconnect between what your coaches were doing and what you were learning? Or were they good in the sense that you could see them applying what you were learning in the classroom? Yeah, um, there was a little bit of a combination. Some of it was like retrospective looking back at coaches that I had had who Mm. both very much did not have any basis in sports science um, in what they did and how they did things, as well as then seeing a little bit of those who were so like my high school swim coach and I had gotten into triathlon at this point and I was actually um well kind of got involved with the triathlon club at the university and in a way kind of took on a role as coaching that club Mm. I was I was elected as the president I think my uh sophomore year and and you know there were 
I think six folks when I joined the, the team. And by the time I left the university, there were 40, 40 kids involved. And mm. so it was teaching and coaching and yeah. also having a purpose, which was part of then, okay, applying some of the, the principles of sports science progression and specificity and things like that yeah. into what we were doing. So that was the point at which you, you transitioned from being purely a consumer of information to a provider. Yes. And, um, can you remember what your early principles or philosophies were around that? If you were to meet your, yourself at that point now, would you be impressed by your coaching approach or not? Uh, I would say I wouldn't have even had a really well-defined philosophy yeah. at that point. It would have been, uh, I'd say if I would meet myself from that period of time, I would, I would be impressed by uh, my enthusiasm and, and basically doggedness at, at looking and consuming and pulling in information and potentially being able to distribute some of that and motivate others and help um, to some mm -hmm. degree. But I think I would say I was still... Uh, underinformed relative to the the grand scale mm. of, of things and um, some of the big picture. Maybe I was still stuck exclusively looking at a physiological realm on certain things mm. or a certain mechanical bias and and taking away then the, the uh, neural uh, aspect to things. Right. <clears throat> so less yeah. less integrated, I'd say, with channels being super, you know, more important and maybe. Mm. neglecting some of the other things that connect them. Do you ever have a sensation or feeling that your younger self thought you knew everything? Because <laughs> uh -huh. uh, when I look back, if I, if I think back on my own philosophy, even of sports science, I remember consuming information and going back to a coach that I knew back home who was one of my early influences. And I remember being so impressed with myself and I thought I had all the answers and I explained to him all these things I'd learned and he just looked at me he turned over, he grabbed a book off the bookshelf. He said, 1968. Yep. <laughs> that was written in 1968. We know. Yep. And I remember being really humbled by, by that. And it, it, was, it was an interesting experience. Yeah, I would say for sure. I was uh, pretty proud of all the things that I thought I knew that were, mm. uh, I was thinking, you know, mm. that You're I was on, on the cutting edge when in some case I was very much off the have you seen that? Edge. Have you seen that curve of the Dunning-Kruger effect that yeah. shows... Confidence plotted against um, knowledge. Oh, yeah, I, think I had extreme confidence. Yeah, <laughs> and you're, at that, you're at that first point because you gained a little bit of knowledge and now you're super confident. And then as you gain more knowledge, you actually lose confidence. Yeah. That's where you'd want to be. Yeah, and I think some of it was also interesting being involved in a sport that was fairly new in a way with triathlon. Mm -hmm. um, I actually volunteered then with, with the first national team for triathlon in 1996. Just came out on my own, paid my own dime for two weeks and just took in as much as I could. There was mm. the, the head coach at the time was George Dahlem, a PhD exercise physiologist. Um, and again, I was learning so many things that when I got home, man, I thought I was the, mm. you know, that I knew everything about triathlon at that yeah. point then, yeah. which again, I knew more than I had <coughs> before I left, mm. but boy, it was, uh, still again, that's, that's still going back, you know, over 20 years of experience that I've had since then. So, okay. So let's, let's jump ahead. We'll fill in the gaps going backwards again. But if I were to say to you now, with the benefit of 20 years of experience and humility, <laughs> what would you describe your coaching philosophy as right now? Yeah. Um, I can go through like a, a certain list of things that are critical, but mm. uh, having an athlete centered approach to working with the whole person, 
uh, using a combination of sports science principles and practical information uh, to help athletes improve their capacity to perform and to develop the mental skills to perform. Okay, uh, so we, we have to deconstruct that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mindful also of the fact that many people listening to this are coaches and sports scientists, or both, like you. But there are many who are not sports scientists or coaches, but they wish to apply things to themselves. So yeah. they, by definition, are athlete-centered. So let's begin there. What does an athlete-centered coach do that a non-athlete-centered coach is not doing? What's the mistake or set of mistakes? Yeah, I'd say in some cases it's... Um, adherence to like a dogma or a method or a system of doing things regardless of whom you're working with or what the those athletes are doing and so just having a, a super rigid structure of you train this way mm. that there mm. is only one way so to me the athlete centered part means all of a sudden now you need to pull in bits of information with respect to that person and what they're trying to do, yeah. where they're at and what they're trying to do. Can you give us a couple of examples that illustrate it? And you don't have to use names and so forth if you don't want to, but I'm just curious about where you've experienced that play out in two athletes needing quite different approaches. Yeah. Um, I'd say there's an, there's an athlete that I'm working with now who's a younger, uh, under 23 cyclist and, um, he comes from a background in alpine skiing and more strength and speed sports. And he, he had worked with somebody who had a little bit more of an endurance training background. And, and literally, if you think about, you know, kind of a, a fast twitch dominant athlete and somebody who's much more slow twitch dominant and some of the things that they need to do in training are a bit different to optimize that performance, mm. even though the task may be the same. And so, um, for me, looking at the athlete and what their history is and what their capacities are relative to the task does change the way I'm going to approach how I'm going to work with them and what we're going to focus on in training, um, both to develop and in some cases, like I'll often say, uh, weaponize your strength mm. and reduce a weakness or, or you know, uh, you know, not focus on your weakness right. and ignore your strength, but actually make what you are good at to be the thing that you're greatest at and then minimize the cost of the thing that may hold you back in some cases. So that's an interesting paradigm. And it's similar to, we, we spoke recently on the podcast to Stuart McMillan, sprint coach. I'm sure you know Stuart. Yeah. And he said the same thing. He said, a lot of times people will observe an athlete's performance and say, if only they fixed X, Y, Z, by fo in other words, focus on the weak point. And they don't recognize that actually there's a cost benefit there to maybe you focus on that to the detriment of the strength. And I remember asking Stuart this question, so I'm going to ask it to you again, is sometimes you do have to address the weakness because the athlete will never reach the ceiling without that. Yeah. How do you balance your prioritization yeah. in, in these cases? Yeah, so there's a part of, of assessing the athlete, what they're doing, what they've done in competition, and kind of you having you know the ideas of what are the what are the barriers to their performance and then actually having honest conversations that are sometimes you know not comfortable and asking the athlete what are the elements that are holding them back the most what do they feel is is kind of preventing them from having the kind of success that they want to have and sometimes 
you think one thing and they think something totally different. And it's like, Ooh, okay. So there's a, some opportunity here of what their barrier is and what I'm seeing as that barrier that I need to address what they see as the issue, as well as in some cases you enlightening them of this is what I'm seeing and being able to provide some level of evidence to support like what that is. Mm. And then you have a lot more opportunity to improve, um, from those two different perspectives rather than again, and a non-athlete centered again, if we pull back to that, it's the athlete is, uh, a very important, uh, collaborator with you. Yeah. Yeah. For Not sure. Top down, for sure. That it's right. collaborating together to see, you know, cause that's ultimately, you know, I think super critical mm. to, to being able to pro to help an athlete improve. And in some cases it's going to be addressing a, a, skill set, a capacity or a psychological, um, barrier or, or, mm. you know, a lack of competence as in some cases being the most critical thing. If you can replace mm. that, that, mm. that, you know, lack of competence with true competence, not manufactured false, right. uh, bravado kind of, but real deep confidence, then man, so much more possible that psychology but super interesting and we're definitely going to go there so i want to park but park that for now when i come back you speak about the conversation you would have with the athletes a difficult conversation like what do we need to change i suppose you you're always asking that in the context you understand the event whether it's your work you've done in one hour records whether it's a olympic road race you've just come back i know from tokyo and, and, a, and a bronze medal in the men's time trial um Someone listening to this who doesn't have a coach, they need to have that conversation with themselves. Is that is that possible, or is that maybe the single biggest thing that a coach brings as an external perspective? How do you how do you interrogate yourself? I would say it's very difficult, but in some cases possible. Not everyone potentially is is able to go to that um, completely honest place. Mm. Um, I'll be honest; I've not had a coach in the sport of triathlon in my entire career. Um, and I raced at a high level again, mm. you know, professionally would be in quotes cause I, you know, worked full time while I was doing it cause I knew kind of where I was in the pecking order of things, but I raced at the elite level and have continued to do some events here and there. Um, and, and, you know, with some sec success and I would say I probably would have benefited from having some more objective viewpoints presented mm. to me and having accountability um, and working with somebody else. But uh, the big part of it is somebody else objectively able to look at what I'm doing and be able to provide them the right kind of guidance to where those opp opportunities were again, mm. both mm. in what strengths I did have as well as then where maybe I, I just had blinders on things that I didn't. Uh, address mm. appropriately then. Yeah, so I suppose the, the, the moral here is get other opinions. Yeah. And and again, it doesn't have to necessarily be a coach mm. per se, you know, a, a you know licensed professional coach in your sport, whatever. Okay, you know, somebody that's gone through a coaching course and, you know, dotted their I's and crossed their T's mm. doesn't necessarily mean that they actually have all the skill sets to be a good coach. They've they've taken certain steps towards potentially being able to do that. But it's somebody who has actually uh, some some insight into the sport that can be actually providing that kind of guidance for you. Yeah. Okay. So that's the athlete centered bit. Now um, I've I've kind of lost track in my own mind of your what you read there. There were the next part I think involved scientific principles. Yeah. Okay. So that's 
So when we talk about athlete-centered, we're talking about being agile and responding to the athlete's needs, personalities, demands, life, and so on. Yep. The scientific pro- principles must be rigid, I guess. Yes, in some way. In your application thereof. Correct. What are those, what are those principles? I mean, and, and to what extent are they negotiable? Yeah, so it's kind of looking at um, being informed by what is out there in sports science research and literature. And so where are, you know, where certain bits of knowledge that can inform and guide your practice, whether that's a a fueling and nutrition related Mm -hmm. issue. So there's certain things you can look at multiple carbohydrate type to have a higher intake of carbohydrate compared to like a single source as something that would be an example of like a research informed application. then into a coaching recommendation for fueling for somebody doing an Ironman or long distance event. Um, and so it's just across that continuum of different elements and, and there's long-term athlete development as potentially aspects there. There's going to be the physiological principles of with intensity and, uh, looking at heart rate power, you know, all those different types of things as uh, other elements um, that the research that's out there can inform mm. uh, how you apply that yeah. into your coaching to a workout to targets, etc. So you're trained to do that. I mean, that's that's one of the. I've always thought my university education taught me how to consume information and specifically how to filter out bad information. How does a listener who's not necessarily trained as a scientist? go about finding information and then filtering out what they shouldn't do in order to focus on what they should. Any advice? Yeah. Um, looking at trusted sources of information and you know, there are some things that are just textbook, you know, reading through his, you know, uh, individuals who have had success, um, in sport, both from a coaching and from, from the athlete perspective as well. And where that information, where they've kind of gathered, um, their process and applications of those things would definitely be, I think, a way of, of being able to consume and in, uh, some of that information. And these days now, something like listening to this podcast <laughs> is a great example of where you can gather some of that information from sources of people who have been involved in utilizing. Yeah, fair. I mean, that's, I've often thought the biggest challenge today is the internet has made information so pervasive and easy to access to the detriment of quality information. And it's, it's for every one good thing, there's 99 bad things available to people. Definitely. What magazines used to do, the internet now does a thousandfold more effectively. <laughs> and rapidly. <laughs> and quickly. So that's, that's an important principle is, is textbooks, not marketing material. <laughs> yep. Um, what, are the, what are the textbook coaching principles that in your mind underpin every successful program? Um, well, I mean, there's, there's some of the discussion of, you know, coaching types, if you think of you know, a democratic coaching style versus an autocratic coaching style and some of those different aspects within that. If you think of like a laissez-faire coach who kind of lets an athlete discover, um, on their own and kind of sit back mm. might in some cases be actually pretty functional for a high level athlete who's been in for a while that sometimes needs 
to, to think things through on their own a little bit uh, with a youth, uh, I don't know, say high collision sport where injury is a, mm. a risk. I don't think that that's necessarily the best thing. A laissez-faire wouldn't, wouldn't be super functional in that way. An autocratic style to keep everyone healthy as first and foremost step would probably work out for parts of it. But um, I think that there's different ways that coaches interact uh, with athletes over time and figuring out where there's a good coaching relationship of what an athlete is looking for mm. as well as what a coach can provide. And, yeah. and so that's kind of an interesting thing if you think of like working with a coach and coach selection. To me, you know, any athlete who says, I, I would like you to, you know, coach me, it's a well, I need to interview you too to see if we're going to be able to work together. Mm. And I've had athletes at times where they were development, developmentally at a point where I couldn't provide what they needed and had to say, you know, I, I can't give you what you need mm. to be able to help you. I would love to if we could be in this style of working together, but where your needs are, are mm. over here. And so I'm going to have to say like, you know, here are some people who I think might be a good fit for you. Yeah. Um, it's a better fit for you for now. Interviewed actually Trent Stellingworth, you know, Trent from Canada yeah. last yeah. week, and he spoke about it as a marriage. Mm -hmm. And he said that in the early phase, it's, a, it's like dating, but you don't want to spend a year on, a, on, a, on what's going to end in a nasty divorce. So you have to find ways to accelerate failure <laughs> yeah. so that you fail early so that you don't waste someone's time and your own. Yeah. So, so with that in mind, and we put this in the parking lot earlier, did you, did you ever study psychology or have you kind of learned people on the job? Yeah, uh, a bit of both. So mm -hmm. even though I, I did my undergraduate in, in exercise and sports science, I think there was probably maybe one, maybe two mm -hmm. psychology and I think a, a basic psychology and then a sports psychology yeah. as like required things. I took additional electives in sports psychology and in my master's degree at, at CU Boulder here. I didn't have to take any sports psychology classes, though I did on my own add those because I wanted to learn more, understand more. And then I'd say throughout the, co the, the process of coaching, learning and seeing other coaches, how they interact and working in different sports even mm. um, has been something that definitely informed that viewpoint. And ultimately, I would say, you know, I could get 10 genetically identical individuals with the same, um, you know, just starting materials and get yeah. 10 wildly different results in the same event based on really psychologically where they were um, mm. on the day and the preparation they had, the skill sets they developed, et cetera. So to me, that psychological component, I mean, one of those 10 might not even show up. Um, right. And it's all, you know, due to not the physical preparation, but that the, the psychology yeah, yeah, and what's yeah. going on across the entire continuum of, sure. of the mental. Inside. Can you think of any, you mentioned other sports and your observations of other coaches could you give us any examples of, of a coach who's done something you said, that is impressive. I, that just blew me away, the way that coach got so much out of that athlete. Yeah. A uh, really good example that I have is actually uh, Bradley McGee. Um, so he's, uh, he had worked with the Australian team. He himself as a, you know, as an Olympic gold and silver medalist yeah. and, you know, has had a, had a, had a wonderful career as a, as an athlete himself, but he's actually working a lot in coaching education now, um, in, in Australia. And he was actually kind of last minute pulled back in to help with this Olympic team. Uh, there was some, some staff, um, some health issues among one of the staff members and 
had a uh, basically a last minute pull Brad back in and he came in and, and just did a fabulous job and just being able to pull together all the athletes as well as then other support staff um, to be in that athlete centered environment at the biggest, you know, how did he do that? What, I mean, what was it about him? Is it a, is it a personality? It's a personality is it, is it a... Um, and, and communication style, mm-hmm. um, personality. Uh, there's something that can be said for, you know, previous experience that he had, you know, accomplishments he's had and, mm-hmm. and people respecting how he's carried himself through all of that um, is part of that, that there's a respect, a level of respect there for both the accomplishment, but more so who he has remained as a person mm. and how he values and, and basically uh, includes everyone in, in that uh, team as a critical and important member. And I think that's, uh, you know, when people feel good, you know, about mm. themselves and about who you're working with or in, in some cases for, it's a lot easier to, to you know, to, mm. to do what it takes in that way of like, just put a little bit extra effort in and maintain a good, uh, just a good general vibe, you know, without any better yeah. way of putting it. Like just having that, those good feelings are, I mean, a immeasurable, um, and be critical to, to some of the highest levels of success that I've seen. So it's fair to say that the athletes would have, they liked him. And they respected him mm-hmm. and he had a technical competency that was sufficient or better than sufficient to de- get results out of them. Um, but a big part of that's personality. Mm-hmm. And someone listening to this is going to go, but I don't have that personality. I'm not that guy who can walk into a room or a woman who can walk into a room and just captivate people. I don't, I'm not an Olympic athlete champion in the past. And I, yeah. So, so I guess the, the question is, how does a person find their style? as a coach definitely um and so i'd say instead of it just being a personality type mm. that's going to have that success it's actually being able to connect and show people that you care in a way that isn't necessarily a verbal thing that they know that you're there for them okay and you're to help them that there is that level of trust yeah. that can yeah. be confidently gained and maintained Right. And doesn't need a recurring um, reinforcement that, you know, mm. words sometimes are said, but the actions don't match the words. And so that to me, it's those actions and how somebody is carrying themselves across um, different domains that that shows that kind of they're trustworthy. Yes. And it has to be sincere because you, you mentioned like a few seconds ago, you have to make that effort. Um, and if you, if you're making that effort in an insincere way, I mean, then you're, then you're effectively acting Yeah, and that's going to be exposed. Absolutely. Just Mm. as I was talking about with the confidence thing, deep confidence versus false bravado. That's on the part of the athlete, but it's 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 the the same same thing thing. and a true connection and communication Mm. versus a kind of like saying what I should or the words that. You know, I should say rather than what I truly um, right. connectedly can say and communicate. And I suppose at the risk of being blunt, and I know many listeners of this podcast do coach, especially kids. Uh, we've received questions and I'm going to ask you one of them in a moment. But if you if you find yourself a coach and, and you're, you're not naturally inspired and you are finding that you have to pretend to be invested, then maybe that's not actually where you should be. Yeah. So that, that should actually come naturally. 
Yeah. That has yeah. to be a, a, that's a critical element to, mm. to having success and to being able to lead others in that way mm. Mm. and ask people to do challenging things, difficult things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On that note of the kids, I mean, you've obviously coached at Olympic level, seniors. But you've worked with youngsters as well. How do you know when to drive a youngster, push a youngster, as opposed to pull, as opposed to hands off and don't do anything? Uh, Matt, um, I'm trying to think, is there like a perfect decision tree to use in that regard? <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's something that takes some time to develop. Um, and... I would say taking cues if you do work with young athletes and seeing in some cases how their peers are are looking at a situation and, and being able to read, you know, because mm. sometimes let's just say a kid's had a rough day, you know, at school and the other kids know mm. something happened. You might not have that awareness in that moment. And but if you can see and read a feeling mm. from those other athletes that are around And it. Again, it might be more of a team situation where that's possible. Um, you can like slow things down and, you know, maybe not even say anything in that moment right there, but, but redirect what you were, you know, thinking was going to be the right action. Mm. Um, and then be able to, to check in, you know, after the, the training or something, you know, as an example like that. There is no absolutely hard and fast though decision tree. I think it is uh, having an awareness though and just watching how your athletes are moving. Um, it, it, again, a big change from what is normal for them either way, you know, in some cases like, whoa, they're really mm. like ramped up today. Like what's going on? Like they usually don't do this. Like. It's not always, you know, for the best reason why that, you know, mm. change in behavior occurs. And so, I mean, this is a sort of a left field question, but you're a coach. You've worked with athletes at the very top level. When you see things like Simone Biles in Tokyo and Naomi Osaka recently and prior to the French Open, do do you how do you interpret those athletes' reactions? I mean, now we, this has gone psychology yeah, now more than yeah. anything else. But your your perceptions are interesting to me because you would have a filter as a coach, a lens rather. Yeah, where I don't have that. So yeah, um, for me, I I am I would say a hundred percent in support of like of those athletes. Knowing that there's so many things that are that are going on in their background that I have no awareness of, and mm. and understanding the real reality of that intensity and pressure, mm. and if an athlete who is there, you know, anybody who is at that level, is a committed individual, right. has made sacrifices, has put things out there, you know, in many ways, even in some cases, like on a you know multiple time daily basis, like their their health is at risk. And if they make a decision that 
I need to back down, that's actually like the wisest uh, decision they can make and 100% support at that point mm. and find out really what has caused that is then, okay, pulling back and afterwards there's going to be, you know, whatever, a postmortem, however you want to yeah. describe it of like, okay, how did we get to this point? that it all that it came to a head here and now were there things that were along the way kind of missed and swept under and not addressed early enough or was it just every there was a certain you know series of things that just happened mm. all in concert that that hit that point where you know it had to have been and the thing that struck me with both those examples and with others i mean because obviously now we we work primarily with endurance athletes and tom dumoulin similar thing in cycling yep. uh, there have been a few others actually there was mm -hmm. a sprinter was it kittel yep Marcel kittel similar yep so now you're dealing with obviously psychology and potentially these are big deals yeah. but the thing that strikes me is that when people talk about this they seem to imagine that it's like their 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 class at school and there's 30 kids and 29 of them lack motivation. Yeah. These people are not those that, that, these people do not fall into that category. No. Um, and so you, you think, oh, she's being soft. She's being weak. And so, like if these people pull back, there's a big deal there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's, that's Neil's, yeah. that's Sky. That's, that's, that's Sky, Sky, one of right? our three, my little miniature Don pack here. I arrived at Neil's house early and got a very, Hostile Loud. greeting from Sky, who's now found someone else to be friendly to. <laughs> yep, she uh, she talks. Yes. Um, anyway, that's segue aside. I mean, I just we yeah. we went yeah. down that well, rabbit hole. Yeah. Sorry. One thing I'd love to add on that yeah. though is yeah. I think a lot of times people in popular culture think that coaches have to be that uh, authoritarian autocrat, my way, the highway, and that's what's celebrated mm. out there, and that's what. That's what the general public often think of in sports, you know, are that tough guy coach or gal who does it. And the athlete is also then that same. They just need to buckle down and get it done. It's like, well, neither of those things, I, in my experience in elite sport, are true. That the Right. But that's because, and I don't mean to single out Americans now, but that's because the, the understanding and perception a lot of people have about coaching comes from American film. Yeah. And so you watch any given Sunday and there's that famous speech. Uh, you watch Friday Night Lights and the coach has this, he's almost like the mayor of the town. And you call them coach. Yeah. And they do have a certain pinnacle status yeah. that has been, and that's not and really that's reality. Popular culture yeah. then kind right. of seeping into and an expectation then placed upon all these other mm. sports athletes and coaches that is then hard to shake. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, fascinating psychology, but but let's let's track back to the to the physiology and the science side of it. Um, have we done justice to your philosophy? I don't want to I don't want to leave that before we talk about other things. I think that that you know we've hit on most of those things, kind of mm. that, that practical methods. So the, the other thing is like. I see a lot of times a lot of young coaches like, oh, there's a research paper out on this and this these intervals are the whatever the magic bullet in yes. some way. And it's yeah. like, well, yeah. OK, where do they fit in the context of the progression and development that the athletes on the mm. needs for the sport or or event that they're preparing for all those kind of things? It's it's you know, it may be a wonderful workout, but where does it fit in the big picture uh, and for that athlete specifically, have they done something very similar to that, that they, you know, telling them that something else is 
better when they've had good experiences with something that's a little bit different. Mm. Like, why would you go ahead and change something that's working? Right. Um, and so again, I see that some cases that it's, you have to have that, that combination of, you know, research informed, but practical application mm. and, and, you know, how we do things in, in the real world. It's human nature though, for especially young coaches to pursue innovation. Um, when the reality is that actually good coaching is, is you have to be patient and sometimes quite boring. Yeah. Repetition and mm. consistency pay the biggest, you know, the consistency pays the biggest dividends over time. Right. For sure. So even when you're not doing necessarily the, the very best thing, you're better off sticking with it than chopping and changing to what you think might be better. Is that, would that be accurate? Generally, yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, We're, it's not always entertaining. Right. Um, yes. In that way. Would it be fair to say, and I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. If I'm wrong here, say so. 20 years in now, there, there, there must be very little about physiology that surprises you when you work with an athlete. Like, you know the event. So say it's an hour record. You've, mm -hmm. you've had yeah. Rowan Dennis broke the men's. You've yeah. had uh, Evelyn Stevens mm -hmm. broke the women's. Yeah. If someone came to you now and said, we want to do an hour record, you know the formula physiologically. Yeah. So what challenges you as a coach now? Yeah. Um, the things that challenge me now are a little bit more some of the uh, tactical domain mm -hmm. of, of things. And so, you know, a few years ago, I was working with a long course triathlete and I've worked with actually a lot of, a lot of triathletes over time as well. That's uh, something that I have enjoyed doing, but I've I kind of shied away from long distance because it was kind of like, it's just like run the red line and you know, whoever crosses first, there was, there weren't a lot of tactics being employed mm -hmm. and there are more now, but several years ago I had this athlete, Joe Gambles, and I said, listen, you know, for this one race, we're going to employ this strategy. We're going to pace the bike very differently because this is the course itself. Who's in there? What, you know, what I think they will tend to do. You can do this kind of work, recover here, hold steady there, and you should have a gap in this range that then will allow you to run your pace through, you know, if not the entire run, a large portion of it, and then potentially be able to respond if needed. And he was willing to, again, do something tactically different than he had ever done. And on the day, again, it worked out well. Um, it was a great, you know, he won the, the Boulder 70.3 race. Um, and it was fun to see a plan with tactics relative to some combination of his physical ability and physiology and mm. then the competition and who was there and what their kind of strategies we'd seen play out, um, be, be put into place. And, uh, that's, that to me is super exciting. So you've almost, it's like you've, you've achieved a degree of mastery over physiology and now it's a question of how do I play yeah. tactically with, with that. Yeah. What, what um, between say 20, 2001, 20 years ago and now, um, what, what's the biggest changes that have happened in sports science that have impacted on your coaching? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm thinking like wearables. You yeah, know, exactly. You right now, pattern. everyone has a quantified data set yeah, of information yeah, yeah. Uh, some maybe you know higher uh, might have more pieces to it um, but I actually have my first heart rate file from an Ironman race I did in 1999 
and mm. I still have that. It's every five seconds. It was a polar, uh, yes. yeah. but every five seconds for that, you know, Ironman race, I had that heart rate download and it was something that actually informed me about pacing and a failure of my pacing yes. personally, um, on that day that now is just standard, you know, and that's not just the heart rate. It's power output, cadence, mm. speed, you know, whether it's running, um, all those kind of things in as well as then on, on the bike and in some cases, you know, in swimming, there's certain metrics that are being tracked a little bit more mm. as well as then all the fun recovery type things, getting not just to sit in the morning at breakfast and do a resting heart rate, but boy, a, a you know, sleeping, resting HRV in conjunction with resting mm. heart rate mm. and the load and the work you've done and some models that are trying to, you know, assess or accurately maybe reflect the work that's being done. That is such a massive scale change in a way that's, it's exciting, but you can get lost yeah, if you yeah, focus completely. and put a microscope on something that doesn't matter. Right. Completely overwhelmed by, by data. Um, have you found that the people you train and work with are, do you have to, do you have to use a different approach because they have their own data and they're saying, coach, I mean, look at this, look at that and so on. And yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're so informed Definitely. without expertise. Yeah. So when, I mean, this is the case that a lot of folks look at things that don't matter. They spend inordinate uh, amounts of time and energy analyzing things that are irrelevant. So, such as what? I mean, picture. let's give our listeners three tips of what not to waste your energies on. <laughs> yeah. If you're looking at like your, your uh, power duration curve or something to that effect, you know, or peak power on every training session and yeah. tracking some sort of a log of that versus, you know, what you did last week and last month and last year you are spending a lot of time on things that don't matter. Mm. Um, training is, is creating a level of stress. You have to have rest and recovery and an adaptation. So yeah. for me, it's the change in capacity over time and potentially an interrelationship of a couple of variables. Like how fast are you running at us at the same heart rate, mm. you know, for a steady state, 10 minute effort. How much power are you producing for, again, a similar perceived effort or and or heart rate? Um, and how fast are you going uphill? Because that's then some combination of your weight, your rolling resistance, your aerodynamics, all of those things. Um, that's that's the stuff that, you know, having some occasional benchmarks that you use mm. to assess those changes, not the daily, am I better than I was last week, last month, like that you have a less frequent. Yeah. So it sounds like you're not really using all this technology in a way that's different to how you might have used it in 2003. Correct. Is that yeah. fair to yeah. say? Yeah, we just have 10 so, platforms to do the same thing right. where we had Excel yeah. back then. <laughs> or I only had Excel. Uh, I mean, heart rate variability and sleep? Mm -hmm. You find value in that? Um, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and this is part of the then, uh, you know, part of many years ago, if I knew what I know now, I would say yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I know 100% that this is high value. And mm -hmm. now I would say, I think there's a value in this mm. and it's something to incorporate with these other trends. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because I'd say out of every 10, what do we want to call them? Attributes of these devices, only one matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Questions, which one, which one? Yeah. Yeah. And which one is reliable Yes. from that yeah. as well. Yeah. Are there any others? I mean, I, I sort of, steered us in the direction of wearable tech. Are there any other 
paradigm shifts that have happened over the course of your coaching career that are, are noteworthy? Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I think there's been those shifts in now people looking at trying to assess recovery as mm. a critical factor mm. um, where, you know, 10 and 20 years ago was much more looking at the load, what work was being done and quantifying that. Now mm. we have so many different tools of being able to quantify that. I, I still don't think we have a great um, way of truly representing the entire uh, load that is placed on an athlete from all the perspectives. Mm. So I was at a conference some years ago and somebody was like, Oh, what's the future of sports science? And you know, somebody's like, Oh, aerodynamics. And somebody was like muscle oxygen. And it's like all these little things. Like those are devices that already exist right now. Yes. Like I actually had every, almost every single one of those, like in my backpack at the mm. time, it was like, yes, all nice tools. I'm like, the thing we don't have is a psychometer, a med, a good indirect, continuous monitor of what's going on in, in our head, mm. um, in a way that's useful. Now we can do, uh, you know, we can go through questionnaires. There's some really good, you know, different things that require a discrete measurement, but we don't have a real good, you know, kind of somewhat continuous, non-invasive, um, way of assessing what's going on there. And, um, I think that's actually, you know, for the future. And if you had value. that, if you had that, what would you want it to tell you? What would it's, top three outcomes be for you? What? Yeah, for me, it would be looking at the associations between whether it's high performance and what are the attributes that we see repeating in high performance, as well as then the opposite when there's poor performance and what are the potentially the things that are Are we talking occurring. here? Are we talking here like flow state, in yeah. zone, that sort of stuff? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And looking at those yeah. differences yeah. between, you know, excellent, great performance and actually the, the opposite the worst kind of performances and then mm. again it's kind of like look at the extremes for me um is where you want to see more you know where you can potentially see more difference in something rather than like in the middle a little bit this way a little bit that way give me the absolute best performance absolute worst and what are the things that may be you know uh associated with again associated not necessarily cause effect could a listener of this podcast now take that and do anything in their training to understand their own um, psychometry? I think so. And what uh, would that be? Putting some tag words along with, with good performances and bad performances. Mm. And uh, after the, are we talking after, after the fact? Or are we talking yeah. about I'm cycling now up left-hand canyon and I'm just I'm having a great day yeah. and I'm aware of what I'm thinking? Then I got to write afterwards. I got to document what it was that afterwards, I was thinking. Yeah, or pull out your phone and just do a little voice note while you're doing it. Maybe mm. even better. And then the reverse Great. is also like I'm having a dreadful day. I've got lead in my shoes. Now I want to understand. Try to and what are you? What are you creating there? Just self awareness. Awareness. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I had a high school uh, cross country coach who, you know, when we did certain speed work, would just say quick feet quick feet and just be there as we were doing this stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we got ingrained in, in when at a certain, on a course, he would be at a certain point and just be saying quick right. feet, quick feet. I mean, Pavlovian in a way of having those words associated with, I built my own, you know, what, what uh, mantras and things like that, that I've used in different types of events, different times mm. that you kind of revert back to. And in some cases, you know, 
there's power in that. Can you tell us, um, <laughs> feel free to say no, can you tell us like in Tokyo with 7K to go in the Olympic time trial and everyone, if you watch that, I mean, okay, gold was won by a guy over yep. the horizon, yep. but from second to sixth or something was yeah. five seconds or yeah. what was it? It was yep. ridiculous. And, and Rowan was fifth. Um, at 7k to go okay so fifth, fifth position so if we, we didn't could, say, if we could read his mind do we do you have an idea what he's thinking uh so there was we didn't know what he was thinking at that time and sure, I mean, what, yeah. what we were though thinking about was the communication and what words and what information we were providing to him mm. so mm. it wasn't you're in fifth place it's you're seven seconds out of silver Okay, right. There's seven right. seconds out of silver. This is now the time. This is what we've been preparing for. So specifically within that mm, course, mm. we knew it would kind of ride heavy and that the second lap would be, you know, the biggest difference. Uh, the uphills clearly would also be the biggest differences. And from, the, from that 7K to go to the finish was, you know, there's an mm. uphill a little bit on the track with then a final uphill into a long kind of slight false flat uphill drag to the finish. So it was going to be whoever can close strong is going to be the more successful riders. Yeah. And so that was actually something that we practiced in training weeks, months leading into it, actually doing some, uh, virtual training actually with yeah. Brad in Australia, me right here, actually at midnight on the computer, uh, and Rowan riding in, in Europe and talking through some of these things and actually having video we had recorded in 2019 mm. of, of the course itself and had that virtual ride going on with Rowan increasing effort the second lap whenever mm. we did mm. two lap efforts. And so it was part of the entire process for a very long time leading to that event specifically to have that ability um, ingrained. Mm. And um, for sure, it made a difference. You know, he closed from seven seconds out of silver to two seconds out of silver yeah, and surpassed yeah. two people and in, jumped, in that. Jumped onto the podium, right? Yeah, put himself there. And, okay, another example then is Evelyn Nile, Stevens, uh, the one-hour record. Did she have a, a self-talk place to go in the 45th minute with 15 to go? And you think, actually, it's it's the third quarter, yeah. right? It's from yeah. 30 minutes to 45. Yeah. Yep. Push, pull. That's it. Those are her words. That's Push, it. Push, pull. Okay. And thinking about pushing into the pedals on the straights and pulling through the turns. Oh, I think so that was going to ask you. Just switching. It was a process oriented yeah. Yeah. of focusing on on what could she do Who to came manage. Up? She came up with that? That was all hers. Yep. Okay. 100%. Guided guided by you, like saying we need to think about what you're going to think about. <laughs> so she or, she did have a mental skills coach okay. uh, as part nice. of uh, her, her yeah. you know, yeah team of, of people and so um i didn't know that before the race like what the or before the event what what tools she would be using but mm. it was do you have tools and and mantras things that you're going to use yep okay mm. great um there we go and, and that's the it. other thing as a coach i think yeah i would encourage those who are out there who are coaches themselves and make sure that you do utilize other resources who can help you be a more effective coach you know, know yeah, where your yeah. strengths are and know where you can bring others in who can help athletes. Especially if you're athlete-centered because then the athlete is, because I remember this visualized as a solar system, the athlete's the sun and then yeah. the planets are the coaches. Yeah. And you might be one of five Correct. satellites, <laughs> planets circulating this, yeah. uh, revolving rather around, not circulating. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. revolving around. Yeah, the first ever cycling world champion that I coached was a master's mountain bike racer. She was 49 years old in the 45 to 49 age group. She had won 
silver and bronze in her age group previously and the year going into her 49th year, which again, top of an age group usually isn't a time Shouldn't to go for be, it, but, right, but she, we knew she could do it, but we had to improve her downhill skills. And she worked with a downhill mountain bike coach mm. for months leading into the race. Mm, and mm. we also tr played a little bit with her training and, and did like a hard week, easy week because you work full time and, and you know, two weeks of progressive training was just too much for her. Mm -hmm. So hard week, easy week. She also lived at altitude. So there's all these things that we learned through, you know, not having failures necessarily, mm -hmm. but not succeeding mm -hmm. at that highest level that we put into practice. And she had success for sure through that combination of all those things. Mm -hmm. She gained mm -hmm. skills. She gained confidence in her downhill skills. She got to the top of the hill with one or one other athlete and she won it on the downhill, not on the mm -hmm. climb, which it was like, wow. Yeah, yeah, great. So, so okay. So now you've learned that uh, Evelyn's doing push pull. Have you applied that to other athletes, or do you say, you know what? Do you apply the principle and say to athletes, the I want you to come up with yours. Yeah, find yeah, the thing yeah. and and practice and experiment. And I'll use an example. Uh, Rowan does a lot of counting himself in time trials. Yeah, he counts uh, his cadence. Counts. I, I do that actually. Yeah, yeah. I count a hundred on the right, and then I'll do a hundred on the left, or. Yep. Whatever it takes. Yeah. And so it's like, what are the things, what are the things that you can use that you can practice to develop that you can then rely on when, yeah. Yeah. when everything else is, you know, when you don't want to be focusing on other things, something that you yeah. kind of focus yeah. on that keeps you in the moment doing what you're doing. I, I don't think of them as distractions. They're actually things mm. that narrow your focus into what you're doing, not mm. get you away from it. I remember speaking with, uh, Psychology, the, the mindset coach of the All Black rugby team. I mean, you, yeah. Americans, the All Blacks are yeah. the the pinnacle sports team in that sport anyway. One of the, in fact, across all sports. And the advice they got given is early in the game, when you run out before kick or find someone in the crowd who's wearing a distinctive color, shirt, shorts, hat, whatever it is, and ground yourself by looking at that person. That, so that was what they used to do was just reset mentally to stop yourself from being panicky or yeah. over aroused or overwhelmed, whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. Be in that right yeah. now here, <laughs> grounded. Yeah. It's, it's funny how we, I, I came here with the intention of discussing physiology <laughs> and every question almost has veered towards psychology, which I think is quite meaningful. <laughs> There's an exquisite yeah. relationship there yeah, yeah, yeah. that without, you know, without right. one, you can't express the other. Of course. Yes. And, and you can have all the, the, the hardware, in the world and you won't realize anything with it that operating system has mm. to drive it yeah yeah <laughs> so, so let's i want to wrap up because i've taken so much of your time um, and knowledge let's let's talk about three categories now there are people listening to this who are coaches mm -hmm. your journey was into coaching through as an athlete sports scientist and then you basically took over <laughs> as a coach uh, what, what advice would you give that person to develop their coaching over the next three years. Yep. Uh, don't be afraid to look outside of the specific sport that you are coaching and interested in. Um, I didn't even mention it, but I was a strength and conditioning coach with an AHL hockey team. So a league oh, below yeah, right. the NHL, but uh -huh. uh, the head coach actually went on to the NHL yeah, yeah. and some of those players, but I learned a lot. I never played ice hockey myself. I'm not a very good ice skater. Um, I'm not great at stick and ball sports. Um, Mm. And there were still applications and things that I learned in, in working with that team in, a, mm. in an area where I could provide expertise because they use cycling as their off-ice conditioning. So I know cycling, I know fitness, was mm. able to work with them there. But to see 
all the other things that that I was right. able to actually pull from that. I think it, it really forces huge. you to deconstruct and reverse engineer what you're trying to achieve, doesn't it? I mean, I know, like I went into to rugby as a complete non-rugby expert, the same yeah. as you with ice hockey, and and the the learning curve is so steep because you bring with you the principles you understand from your sport, and suddenly you have to. And you find ways to apply them and you learn, okay, it didn't work here, it did work there. It's very useful. So when you say don't be afraid to look outside. Or would, in fact, seek out. That's, that's what I was going to ask. Is, actually. Is actually say you're a football coach, tennis coach, listening to this. Find another sport and volunteer for three months, six months, yeah. whatever yep. it is. That's what you do? Yep. Absolutely. It'll, it'll do more than you could probably imagine. Mm. Okay. So that's your advice to the coach. A lot of listeners, I'm sure, are young sports science students. They are you in yep. 19, whenever it was, yep. as a Penn State athlete. Yep. 90, yeah. 93. Uh, what, 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 do you, what do you say to them? Because they're st- sports science is an odd world now, I think. It's, it's overproduces graduates mm-hmm. who then don't find what they were looking for. Yeah. Find the things that interest you the most and tie that to where there's an application of that. So I've known a lot of students over time that come out with with a a massive knowledge base, but an inability to apply it Mm -hmm. and work with people and have an impact in that way. So make sure that that area where you have interest, that you are able to find a way where it then applies and makes a difference. So again, Um, it's the same the same action almost as our first group who we advised is go and coach. Yeah. Just jump in. Yeah. The number of volunteer mm. uh, positions mm. that I had, you know, that I took in different ways yeah. to learn a skill set. Absolutely all, all very invaluable. When somebody yeah. tells me, I, I want to do what you do, I'm like, okay, well, here are certain things you should ha- do in that process. You're mm. going to have to learn some of the things that you don't want to do. Yes. Like I worked in actually in a biomechanics lab and digitized 3D, you know, coordinates for 40 hours one week. I'm like, yeah, I actually don't really want to be a biomechanist in that way. Mm. Like, that's not the thing that that excites me. Yes, that's the, the I mean, I was just talking before we even recorded about David Epstein. You've just finished the range uh, yeah. or range, not the mm-hmm. range range. Um, I know David, I'm seeing him next week. Um, that's kind of what he said is, is uh, he calls it sampling. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. critical. And and it's not yeah. always doing just more and more of the things that you want. Right. Doing some things that you're you're not sure of. Yeah. You yeah. know, or even you may think like I definitely don't like to do this, but you can still pull something out of it. Mm-hmm. Like I used to bale hay when I was in high school, you know, <laughs> a friend had a farm and I hated it and I was, you know, got itchy, had basically a, an allergic reaction, but there was still something that was useful what, having what, done that. What was useful? What did you learn from that? Uh how you work together uh-huh. and how yeah. you can take that discomfort yeah. and manage it. So finding comfort in discomfort, I would right. say yeah, for yeah. me as an endurance athlete. Because it's hard labor. And absolutely. You, and you have no end point. So you learn to pace and manage your perception, your efforts and so on. Yeah. Very so good. being uncomfortable isn't the worst <laughs> thing in the world. Awesome. So, okay. So those two professional groups, the coach and the sports scientist, we're actually advising them don't narrow down. Yeah. Keep Do the opposite. Wide. Go wide, go wide. Uh, and then the last group is is uh, is is me, forty year old, self coached because I'm not yeah. good enough to want to coach athletes, and I'm looking for uh, ways to improve. Yeah. 
An improvement might mean finishing a marathon. It might mean breaking three hours for a marathon. So we're going to cast the net wide here. What advice do you give those people based on your knowledge? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe that's too wide. Yeah, but, there's but, a lot. But, yeah. but I would say one of the things we, we I see repeated over and over with, with a lot of, you know, say, masters type athletes who get in, they have a goal that they want to achieve, you know, X, Y, and Z thing, whether it's to finish a marathon under four hours, they want to do the Leadville 100, they want to do something. Um, and they get stuck on the output required to do that rather than working with where they're personally and physically, physiologically at and assessing what are the things that are going to be most critical for them to address in the preparation for it. And mm -hmm. in so many cases, if it's those kind of ultra distance things, fueling and pacing mm -hmm. are like number one and number two that mistakes are so consistently made um and another just from a physiological perspective like endurance training being done too hard for general endurance work i would say i'm fairly well known as being a low volume high intensity kind of proponent okay and i would to a degree absolutely agree with that mm. but i would also counter and say i do believe it's absolutely critical to moderate intensity to the lower end of things mm. for endurance training yeah most people do what should be aerobic training in the kind of moderate range and that leads to a lot of problems and lack of development right. lack of improvement so just just so that i understand exactly you said you got stuck on the output side so for example what's the mistake they make uh trying to hold a running pace because they know that their goal was uh, a 3.30 marathon and yeah. that works out to, what, what's that? That's 210, that's five minutes a K. Yeah. Or eight minute miles. Yep, eight minute mile. And, and so training, they never want to slow, train right. slower than say an 8.30. Okay, so they don't, in, yes, well, got you, got you. Okay. And if you think about, I was, I've, I've explained it as like a, a, a training relativity mm. uh, that, you know, elite marathoners, this is way back, you know, they used to run a, a 2.10 marathon was fast. So, mm. you know, that's mm. a five minute mile pace. They're doing long runs at, oh, six, six and a half minute miles. So they're running 20 to 30% slower than marathon race pace. Mm -hmm. So your average person, if you're trying to run an eight minute per mile, relatively speaking, 20 to 30% slower is now talking a nine and a half to 10 minute plus mile yeah. minute per yeah. mile Which pace. They that's feel the it's same, a waste of time. And that's the same relative mm -hmm. intensity mm -hmm. as the world's best. Right. So unless you believe that you are more physio physiologically gifted and capable than the world's handling best, that load, then, right. then mm. there's no necessity in going faster than that for your endurance yeah, runs. Yeah. Now, yes, you do need to do some intensity. That is faster. But when you do your endurance training, if you're not training that your appropriately easy pace, you're going to short circuit all the other work you do and you're not mm. going to get the gains that are possible otherwise. How do you know you're doing that? Or as um, a non-coached athlete, you've, yep. you've only got yourself yeah. to rely on. I mean, yeah. how do you know? Uh, doing the old school talk test, uh, Carl okay. Foster. Yeah. Uh, if you can't yeah. actually have a conversation with your, you know, if you're if you're running with somebody or riding with mm -hmm. somebody and you mm -hmm. can't be at a conversation pace while you're doing that, well, you're going too hard. Yes, you could use a heart rate monitor as well mm -hmm. as another cross check to that if you've done some testing or. And what's your uh, target there? Like, assistance. I mean, I know St Stephen Siler always talks about the 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 zones. Yeah. And he wants you to be, I get the numbers confused all the time. He wants you to, to never be, he wants 80% of it below like a zone two, right? Yeah. 
I mean, do you do you use that sort of system or not necessarily as a as a hard and fast rule? Because that eighty twenty again, when you're talking about the volume of somebody who trains twenty to thirty hours yeah, a week versus your average person who maybe trains four to eight hours mm-hmm. a week, these are totally different. Like you can't use the same percentage distributions for extremely high volume elite young mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. 40 year old who's trying to fair you know, yeah that makes sense who's going to run you know 50k a week okay so let's try and capture because we, we went onto some branches <laughs> yeah, now uh, we want to capture that so don't get stuck on the output yep. understand that you have to train you you are allowed to train easier than you want to race at <laughs> yes you need to you need fact, to do it it will yes. help you yes. it is counterintuitive counterintuitively the thing that will actually probably give you the greatest gains over time right and you can't get there in three months yeah it's interesting we did a this was probably like in our first dozen podcasts we asked listeners to send in the best training advice they'd ever received and a lot of them was similar to that is you don't have to perform every day in training yep and you don't have to race the training sessions and you don't yeah so that was that was valuable and you've just said the same thing so yeah. If you if you needed convincing listeners, be convinced. There it is. Yeah. Is there any? I mean, I think I think we've covered so much ground. And again, it's so interesting that you you're trying to talk physiology, and we constantly go back to motivation, psychology, arousal. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's really very interesting. Definitely. Those are the. I mean, that's the exciting part. I mean, even with as a coach, you know, experience over time, you know, there's things that. I thought about were super important, but big picture they weren't. So like 2008 Olympic games, I was coaching Taylor Finney was an 18 year old, you know, going there for the individual pursuit. And I was very data driven at the time. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even actually have a power meter on his bike until after the world championships that year where he qualified, ended up qualifying. So we started using it and my computer hard drive melted down when we were in, in, uh, in Europe, <laughs> he had already done the junior world champs in, in Cape Town, South Africa. We were training in Bordeaux for a few weeks before going directly over to, uh, to Beijing. So I had no backup computer. And so the last couple of weeks, almost 10 days of training was no data. And it was all just the pace feel and making the adjustments on the fly, mm. coaching exclusively with my eye and nice. being there in the moment and having again, none of the data to use. And he had success, you know, he, he, you know, didn't win a medal at that Olympic games. He finished seventh at that Olympic games, but the following in, you know, March in 2009, he won his first elite world title in the individual pursuit and mature athlete sport. That's, I mean, 18, yeah. Seventh at 18 is something. Yeah. But but I have to, okay. I I thought I was out of questions, but you've just brought up something that made me think now. So with Rowan Dennis, you're sitting here in the room at midnight Mm -hmm. You're simulating the course for Tokyo. Like you're teaching him every hundred meters what it looks like, what it's going to feel like. You are being so meticulous in your planning. And then with Taylor, you're saying you were coaching by feel. There was no data and so on. Yep. Was the difference there the athletes? Would Rowan have succeeded on the Taylor approach? Maybe. Or was it you? Yeah, I think it's developmentally both where they were and where I was mm. as a coach too. Yeah. I think both were, were part of that. And I can tell you with, with Rowan, I had to stop looking at some of the data or just know that it's not important because I knew it mm. wasn't important, but still have gotten that um, reinforcement over time of say things, you know, these training load values and just seeing it drop and drop because 
we had, you know, just how the training was and what was available and, and everything. It was a precipitous drop in training load going into that race. And I knew it. I knew we, that's what we were doing. I knew that was the plan, but to still see it and not get that little bit of question yeah. in the back of yeah. my mind, yeah. knowing that he wasn't looking at it. It wasn't something that he cares about. You know, he, he trusts, he's trusted me over time because we've had, you know, success and, yeah. and I'm there for him in that way. And it was still an interesting push pull for me at that point where I've had all that. And, you know, more commonly Ron had done a say a grand tour or some higher overload of training mm. before then tapering into a world championship or mm. other event. And this one was a, we didn't have that. We didn't do that and just have to stay confident um, and not get, you know, clouded by the, the data piece. Yeah. So you actually, you, 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 I was fighting my own. Yeah. It's your, you're micromanaging everything but projecting a big picture that exactly that's, that's that, the exactly that's the balancing act yeah yeah it seems to me that coaching is always a balancing act there's always but not just between two things between five decisions and you've got to make one out of five and yeah yeah what's then, the most important right now mm, to address and then ask yourself questions did it work was i right yeah how do i know if it worked what does a failure look like yeah which is again i say this all the time it's not dissimilar to scientific process yeah. hypothesis intervention evaluation hypothesis conclusion yeah. whatever it is it's, it's just the circle it's the process, it's the process and that's the, the thing it's not the knowing an answer it's mm. you've you've been informed in that context now right. where does the next step go yeah i think that is probably an appropriate way to end so thank you for sharing your physiology and psychology <laughs> with us i really appreciate the time thank you ross Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 